I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, We're experiencing the highest inflation in 40 years at 8.5%. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates to try to curb inflation, but did they act too late? And the price of gas to fill up your car has increased significantly, costing the average American driver $56 more per month, according to Kelly Blue Book Research. Lately, we've been hearing from economists about the possibility that we're headed towards a recession. Here to talk about all of these issues on the economy, I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest, Thomas Honig. He served as vice chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation from 2012 until 2018. He was president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. He currently is a distinguished senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thomas, thank you for joining us once again. You're very welcome. It's good to be with you again. You know, the last time you were on the podcast was December 18th. We talked about the December Federal Reserve meetings. What did the Fed propose and what came of it? Well, they basically talked about the risk of inflation, but they didn't do anything in December except to say they were going to do something maybe later. And they did finally act in March. 
And remember, they also continued easing from December through March in terms of their purchases of government securities and mortgage-backed securities. So they were in an easy mode, keeping interest rates low at that time. So they really didn't start any tightening until this past month. You know, the Humphrey-Hawkins Act changed the nature of the Fed by making employment equally as important as the value of the dollar. Do you think in retrospect that that was a mistake by dividing the Fed's responsibilities from, on the one hand, protecting the dollar from inflation or deflation, but on the other hand saying, now you should only protect it within the context of full employment? I think that may have tended to confuse things, but it never really bothered me in terms of having that mentioned in there, because if the Fed were, in my opinion, doing things with a long-term perspective, which is what their mandate is, it's a long-term stable prices and interest rates. If they've been looking at the long run, there's no inconsistency between stable prices and full employment. You can't have one without the other, as I think we may learn again here in the next several months or a couple of years as we go forward from here. So that didn't bother me. I think the real question is, are you focusing on the long run and long run price stability? If you can do that, you can also keep employment in mind. I mean, part of the challenge has been that over the long run, we've gradually devalued the dollar in a way which somebody once said in the Carter years that they finally had hope of becoming a millionaire, but realized that would be the price of a Big Mac. <laughs> I mean, the Labor Department said that the consumer price index jumped in March by 8.5% from 12 months ago. And I've had several people argue with me, that actually understates the rate of inflation. Because if you do it on a month-by-month basis, it's actually even higher than 8.5%, although I think 8.5% is pretty significant inflation. And apparently the wholesale price index just jumped by an even bigger number, which normally has to work its way through the system. So if you get a big wholesale price index, you're going to get later on a bigger consumer price index. I mean, is that a pretty accurate way of thinking about it? Well, it's a fairly accurate. Now, wholesale prices don't necessarily completely pass through to the consumer. It depends on how much profits are impacted by the producer who you know may absorb some of those increasing costs rather than passing them all along. Depends on the market. But as a general statement, they certainly correlate. As one goes up, the other should follow as well, only higher, <laughs> I would say. The other thing is, I've always had a little bit of trouble with this idea that we ought to have a little bit of inflation. The target being 2%, if you think about 2% inflation over a generation, that's a huge devaluation of the dollar. So we ought to be actually shooting for stable prices. And we can take a little bit of deflation and a little bit of inflation and averages out. And I think we do better in the long run than this pretend target of 2% to make our monetary policy more effective. So I really think the central bank needs to focus on price stability as a primary goal, and then other long-term goals will follow. Jack Kemp used to point out that in the 19th century, they actually issued 100-year railroad bonds because they had such confidence that the dollar would remain a dollar. And of course, from the time we went off of gold and went to paper money, we've had a sort of steady erosion of the purchasing power of the dollar up to the present. Well, we were on a gold standard. You had confidence in the value of the dollar remaining that way. 
You know, we ran a trade surplus for 100 years up until 1971. That's when we started these trade deficits. That's when we devalued. That's when we started printing money very prolifically. And when we really began our bouts of sustained inflation. I always thought it was weird that Arthur Burns, who knew better and had been chairman of the Fed, ended up being Nixon's sort of agent at getting us off the gold standard and going into, for a brief period, wage and price controls. I mean, the whole thing was just totally destructive. It's amazing to have individuals who are so committed to not having wage and price controls and not printing money so freely doing so. It's unfortunate, but you're right. That's what happened. Now, you have two different things going on, if I can draw a distinction and correct me if I got this wrong. I mean, on the one hand, you have inflation, which is a monetary phenomenon of the value of the dollar. On the other hand, you can have specific shortages that aren't necessarily inflationary, although they're much higher prices. So the degree to which the gasoline index has gone up, for example, or the degree to which in the short run, we're going to see a real spike in wheat and other food commodities because Ukraine and Russia are going to be exporting so much less. Those are actually price hikes that could or could not be inflationary by themselves. I mean, is that an accurate distinction? It is. Those are the supply factors. So you have a food shortage, gasoline, whatever, and prices adjust up and you substitute others, you consume less. You may have a higher price, but it doesn't keep going up over time. It just doesn't continually go up. Now, when you get inflation, when you go to the other side of that, the demand side, and if, in fact, the central bank prints money and puts that money out there for individuals, so you have now more money chasing those fewer goods, you can have inflation. As long as the central bank continues to do that, prices continue to rise. And that's really why they say Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Well, I remember I was a sophomore in 1981. And I remember when Paul Volcker, as chairman of the Fed, met with his counterparts in other countries. And they basically said to him, if you don't get inflation under control, we're all going to withdraw our support for the dollar. And he came back home and he ratcheted up interest rates to create a very steep recession. Reagan backed him up on it, and he did break the back of inflation at a time when it was horrendous. But everybody always has this theory of a soft landing. Do you think the Fed's going to be almost compelled to raise interest rates to a point where it will have a direct impact on whether or not we slide into a recession? Yes, I do think they will have to raise interest rates. Number one, they're very much behind the curve. You know, the recovery from the pandemic, as bad as the pandemic was, and I understand emergency measures, but the recovery started in basically late summer 2020, and the Federal Reserve continued its crisis monetary policy of increasing the base money, $120 billion every month, all the way to this last quarter when they then tapered it down to nothing. So they continued an emergency monetary printing of money over a 15-month period longer than they needed to. So now they have all this money searching to buy these goods. And so you have this inflationary pressure. Now, the way you're going to have to do that is you're going to have to raise interest rates. Zero is not an equilibrium interest rate over a long period of time. And you're going to have to take some of this excess money out. Remember, their balance sheet 
before the pandemic was a very large four and a half trillion. Now it's nine trillion dollars. So you have to trim that. And when you do that and you try and bring inflation down, you are going to have to raise rates more than one time, more than March. They're going to have to do it in May. And as they say, through most of this year, you're going to have to shrink the balance sheet. And that's going to bring the likelihood of a recession, make it much higher. And what I fear, to be truthful with you, is they will start doing that. And as they do, unemployment will begin to rise. And when it does, they'll back off from that and they'll start printing money again, and then inflation will pick up. That's the experience we had in the 70s. So once they begin this, as hard as it is and as painful as it will be, and I don't think you can avoid that pain, they better stick to it until they get inflation numbers back down towards that 2% goal of theirs. And I think that's going to take a lot of stamina to withstand the pressure they're going to get from Congress and from the public as the unemployment rate starts to rise again above three and a half percent back towards five or five and a half percent. And we'll see then whether the Federal Reserve can really bring in and stop this inflationary process. I'm Hannah Storm and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, 
the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Junie. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. remember in the late 70s, we ended up with what we called stagflation, where you had inflation while the economy was stagnating, but you couldn't really gin up the economy because that created more inflation, and you couldn't really stop the inflation because that made the economy even worse. And they were just sitting there muddling their way through. So we had inflation, and both the administrations and the Fed said, we're going to stop this, and they raised interest rates, and they tightened up on fiscal policy. The economy slows down and then they back off from that. But when they do, they stop at a place where inflation is higher and then the economy starts to slow. And so they ease policy again. And so inflation starts to rise and they say, oh, no, we got to tighten. They tighten for a while, but unemployment starts to rise and they stop. But they stop at a place where inflation is higher. And they did this three times before Paul Volcker finally came in in 1980 and said, we're going to break the back of inflation and it's going to be painful and we're going to do it. And that's what it took. And at the time, he was not loved for it by many people. And the other thing, which I'd be curious to get your reaction to, because I don't think we've ever discussed it. You know, I was one of the guys working with Kemp and Art Laffer and Jude Winiski and others, arguing basically a supply side rather than a demand side solution, which really was just a return to traditional standard economics in a pre-Keynesian sense that you can either mop up money by shrinking the demand to a point where the prices collapse because there's no demand, or you can mop up money by increasing supply to a point, you know, if they were willing to really pump gas and oil, they would, in fact, bring down the price of oil very rapidly. I once got attacked by Obama for having written a book called Gasoline at 250 a Gallon, because I was arguing that the fracking revolution meant that you were just going to see dramatic decline in the price of oil, which I think got down to about 240 per gallon. But at the time, I was attacked on the grounds that it was impossible. and It was a crazy book. 
And I'm curious, where do you come down this notion that you can either mop it up by dramatically expanding supply or by dramatically shrinking demand? Well, I mean, obviously, the preferable way is to provide the incentives that stimulate supply, supply of goods and services, supply of commodities, the ability to produce that. That increases productivity. It brings down prices at a lower level. But if you print too much money over a short period of time, it will not solve that problem quickly. It's essential to really bringing the wealth of the economy up, bringing real incomes up. But when you've engaged in a monetary policy of creating artificial demand through the printing press, it can't solve that problem overnight. That's going to take some adjustments and pain because they pegged this interest rate at near zero over a long period of time. You have our entire economic system at an equilibrium around zero, which is not sustainable, even with improved productivity. So we've got to go through this adjustment. We did have a former chairman of the Fed who said that if necessary, he would fly a helicopter and just throw cash out. Right. Which didn't strike me as a very reasonable fiscal policy, but, you know, could be a sign I'm too conservative. I call that quantitative easing. That's basically what it is. This last time, it was more out of a helicopter because you printed the money and then you distributed it across the economy to individuals making $100,000 a year. They were getting checks. Well, I was in Italy. Calisto was the ambassador of the Vatican. When the COVID first broke in northern Italy, because they had 100,000 Chinese workers, and they came back to Italy during New Year's with a lot of them carrying COVID. And so I'd seen firsthand how much it was causing pain in the Italian system. And I wrote a newsletter, which I was told at the time was pretty influential, in which I said, whatever the administration thinks they're going to do, they should triple it, because the immediate impact is going to be so horrendous that you're going to have to get through this crisis. The problem was, I want to do it once. <laughs> I think the politicians did it either three or four times. Our spending went up from about four and a half trillion just before the pandemic to six and a half trillion in 2020 and another six and a half trillion in 2021. And it will be above five trillion this year. So yeah, the spending didn't stop. And that's really why we're having this accelerated inflation. I'm disappointed, though, that people didn't anticipate that, that the open market committee, even though they were saying it was transitory, didn't understand that they just printed another $4 trillion of base money, and that had to go somewhere. And so they needed to be backing away from that a lot sooner. It's unfortunate, in my opinion, that they didn't. One last question about the inflation side of this before we get into the consequences. With energy prices jumping, gasoline prices went up 48% in the last 12 months. The Biden administration currently wants us to believe that this is Putin's price hike. How much of this do you ascribe to whatever the complexities are of dealing with the Russian oil system? And how much of this is a function of a lot of other things, including reducing dramatically the ability to develop new oil sources and gas sources in the United States? Well, I think at the moment, most of it is due to other factors. I mean, the war with Russia got underway in February when we reported a almost 8% inflation rate. So yes, we've had some increasing inflation pressures from this war and the disruptions of energy supplies since then, but we were well on our way to high inflation before that ever broke out and before these restricted trade situation developed. So most of it is due to 
the monetary policy and the fiscal policy of the preceding two years. There were many things done to restrict supply because of the concerns for global warming. I understand those, but you're not going to solve that problem overnight. And I think there's another area where people thought they could solve it overnight by stopping production. And you pay it with higher prices and less reserves. So we're going to be paying for it for a while. I noticed that one of the impacts on demand is going to be that the Fed raised interest rates in a way that the current interest rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage jumped from 3% to 5% in the last year. And I think it's going to go up more. But doesn't that virtually guarantee that the price of houses will go down? They certainly should go down, yes. When you raise the interest rate, the value goes down. And houses are certainly going to be affected by these higher interest rates, be less demand. I don't know how big the decline would be, but certainly they should stop increasing as demand holds back and these higher interest rates have to be paid. And we'll see that happen. We'll see it happen in other assets as well. I think you see it becoming more apparent in the stock market and you'll see it in commercial real estate and other assets. That's the effect of long-term interest rates rising. Yeah, it just seems that there's almost a direct correlation that low interest rates are higher housing prices and higher interest rates are lower housing prices. Which then, of course, has a multiplier effect in terms of the guys who are building houses, the lumber industry. I mean, there are lots of other factors that start to come in. Now, the two places, I think, where people really feel immediately pricing are gasoline and food. And both of those, it seems to me, are likely to be a significant problem and a fair amount of pain in the next year. But I noticed that Biden has announced they're going to put a million barrels a day on the market from the strategic reserve. In the long run, does adding a million barrels a day change the long-term pattern of pricing, or is it just a sort of a short-term taking an aspirin? It's going to be short-term because it's not a supply that is permanent. I mean, these are reserves after all. The hope, I think, is you add this, it has a marginal effect that helps in the short-term and by the time you stop putting that million extra barrels or those reserves out a day, that you will have production back in place, either from the Mideast or Russia or wherever it is on the global market. And that will then replace this temporary band-aid called the million barrels a day and you get back to normal. That's, I think, is the intention of this effort. Hannah Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here 
both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I noticed that when you were on Mornings with Maria on April 6th, you predicted that there would be a recession next year if the Fed Reserve continues an aggressive tightening. Do you think they have the nerve to continue tightening enough if it begins to be obvious that they're going to cause a recession? I don't think they have the nerve. No, I don't. And I've based that on their patterns over the last three to four years or so. In September 2019, there was a hiccup in the market and they immediately started quantitative easing at the rate of 60 billion a month. 
And every time there's been a bit of a slowdown, they've backed off of any tightening program. So based on their past actions, I predict they would not have the staying power to bring inflation down if unemployment starts to rise or if the market becomes more volatile. So how could they operate to both stop inflation and encourage economic growth and jobs? I think right now the thing they're hoping for is the so-called soft landing. I don't see it happening. When you're this far behind the curve, you have to tighten policy and keep it there. That usually slows the economy. Now, in the long run, the fact that you bring inflation down should help the economy regain its momentum, regain its balance, and be able to produce. But that's kind of the Paul Volcker effect. You got to get through the pain to the other side, and then you can begin to normalize interest rates and allow the economy to function as it should. That's what the monetary policy people can do. I was a freshman during Jimmy Carter's last two years, and then I was a sophomore during Reagan's first two years. And one of the mistakes that was made was on the three-year tax cut, we only put half of the amount in the first year. On the fiscal side, we were under-stimulating economic growth. And on the Federal Reserve side, Volcker was doing what he should do, which was dramatically raise rates to the point that he broke the back of inflation. And as I said earlier, he did that with Reagan's support. It cost us 29 seats that fall because we were in a recession. Then we came roaring back by 1984 and had a great economy. And Reagan carried 49 states on the theme of mourning in America. So if you were Biden, would you encourage whatever it took to kill the inflation in 2022 and the first half of 23 in the hopes you could then be having a pretty dramatic economic recovery? Or would the fear of what really rapid increase in interest rates will do to you this fall in terms of crushing the Congressional Democratic Party, would that lead you to be sort of very, very cautious about imposing that level of pain on the American people? Well, I would recommend that you put some pretty stiff monetary policy tightening in place through the rest of this year and early next year and bring inflation down. That is your best hope of having the economy recover then afterwards. I don't know, though, because you're going to see unemployment rise and you're going to lose seats no question about it. But if you don't do that and you let inflation continue on, you're going to be much worse off two years, three years from then. So it really have to bring this inflation back down or we will have another period of stagflation. I don't think there's any question about it. So they've really maneuvered themselves into sort of a lose-lose environment. They're painted into a corner, in my opinion. It's amazing. So if you were a consumer... Would you buy now because it's all going to be more expensive later? I would, because it is going to be expensive later. Eight and a half may be the peak. So that's the inflation. So right now I'm at the lower end because next time, let's say it's only 8%. It's still 8% higher. And the time after that, it's 7.5%. Because you don't have a gold standard, it doesn't go down. You don't have deflation. You just have less inflation. Right. So your dollars continue to decline in relative value. I think a lot of people 
are really concerned about the next several years and don't have any good feel for, you know, what's going to happen, what should they be worried about, and how should they be focused. If you were talking to just everyday folks, both about jobs and about prices, how would you sort of describe for them the possibilities over the next three to five years? Well, I think we are actually at the start of some of the harder events that we have to get through. And that is we're at the start of an interest rate cycle that's going to be increasing. And that's going to affect many things in the economy. It is going to affect prices of housing. It is going to affect our standard of living until we get this inflation number down. So we have to be prepared for some pretty difficult times ahead over the next, I'd say, 12 months or more. For things that I really need, now's the time to buy it. I would otherwise prepare for a slowdown in the economy as interest rates rise. We are going to see jobs lost. We are going to see real income decline, as it already is. And I can't solve that problem. All I can do is let's get through it. Let's not hesitate. Let's get things back on an even keel. Let's get inflation back down below 2% so we can begin to live again. And that's going to take a year to two years. I want to thank you for joining me again. This is really helpful. And you understand this so well. I can assure you, if you'll put up with us, we're almost certainly going to come back in the future and ask for your continued wisdom. I do think your experience and your insights are just invaluable. And I hope that people will find this particular conversation helpful because I think people are really confused and really uncertain. And I think you help them get a much better grip on it with this conversation. So Thank you very, very much. I hope I've been helpful and I come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Thomas Honig. You can read more about the current economic indicators on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.